I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard-fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. My guest on The Literary Life today is P. Scott Cunningham, uh, who wears so many different hats, uh, and that's because he is so talented in so many different directions. He's a poet. Uh, he's a promoter of poetry. He is a producer of events, and he's just a really, really good guy. So, Scott, thank you for being on The Literary Life today, and it's great to have you. Thank you for having me. It's, it's always an honor to be on this show. I love this show. And, you know, we're, we're, we're speaking to you right on the cusp of Poetry Month, right? So that always means for me, oh, Miami, uh, the Poetry Festival. So would you talk a little bit about what it's been like, what it was like last year to have to do it right as the pandemic was starting and then what your plans are for this year as hopefully the pandemic is winding down a little bit. So on, on March 13th, 2020, we canceled our festival for the next month, or at least what we were planning on doing, and then uh, spent the next two and a half weeks completely redesigning it so that it could live online. And we did 30 days of Zoom readings, and which, you know, we're not, as you know, we're not really a presenting organization. That's not really the heart of what we do. So it was a little different and it was a lot of fun. It was definitely a huge experiment. But we also, af afterwards, we all sat down and talked amongst the staff, the board, supporters. And we said, well, that was really fun, but hopefully we'll never have to do that again. <laughs> um, 
And uh, so for this year, we're trying to get somewhat back to what for us is normal business, um, which is poetry and public places projects. Uh, and the other part of that equation is usually site-specific events uh, where we're pairing poetry with other art forms and really embedding it into interesting places in Miami. Now, we can't do all of that because we're, we're trying to be as safe as possible in terms of uh, in-person events and things like that. So, but we are doing a lot of poetry in public places. Um, and we're still doing some online gatherings. There's less of an emphasis on a presenter and a, and a, and a passive audience and more putting together uh, workshops or for instance, an online community that meets several times. And an example of that is um, someone proposed to us doing, uh, creating a group that at the same time they create a sourdough starter together and manage their sourdough starter. They're also writing a collaborative poem. Oh, um, so that'll be happening in April. So when you talk about how the fact that you're not a presenter, let listeners know just what the Poetry Festival is attempting to do and what it does do. Sure. So the, the mission of the festival is for everybody in Miami to encounter a poem during the month of April. And so that's 30 days and Miami is a huge place, an enormous place. So it's, it's a quixotic mission. And as such, we fail every year, but we try and fail well. It's kind of um, like being an astrogeophysicist, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, th I think that's a, that, that's a very uh, positive comparison. I'll take that one. Um, but so we're, we're a little bit of a, like a normal festival turned inside out. You know, a typical poetry festival would take place, you know, over two to four days and you concentrate a bunch of people in one area and get as many great poets as you can and have panels and readings and things like that. Um, and, you know, we, we love all those things, but, but the festival was created to grow the audience of poetry and, and also to discover it really. Cause I think what the journey of the festival has been for me is that, at the beginning, I thought we'd be delivering poetry to Miami. And now I know that we are simply creating um, opportunities to encounter poetry because the poetry's already in Miami. You don't, it doesn't need to be delivered. And so what you do is you work with people, people do give you proposals, right? That you guys analyze and figure out whether you want to put it under the umbrella of the poetry festival. Right? Exactly. So every fall, uh, like late summer, early fall, we do a call for, for ideas, for events and projects for the festival. And then we select our favorites. And from there, we, we interview people and kind of whittle it down um, to usually somewhere around like 40, 45 something things that we end up doing every and So April. it runs from April 1 all the way through the end of April. Tell me some of the stuff that's coming up besides the sourdough stuff. Sure. So I'm really excited about a project in Opelaka that we've been working on for a little while. It's called the Opelaka Light District. Uh, we won a Miami Foundation Public Space Challenge grant for it. And we did a series of workshops in Opelaka pre-pandemic and then a couple online post-pandemic uh, where we gathered short poems uh, from Opelaka residents. And we'll be projecting those poems um, onto the sidewalks and streets and buildings in Opelaka to create sort of like a walking light district of poems. And so that'll be live uh, towards the end of April. So that's, that's one I'm really excited about. Another one that I love is um, we're working with the organization Supporting Women Writers in Miami to do a project where we insert um, poems into floral arrangements that are going out in April through a florist named Dolly's Florist. 
And mm. so um, beginning in April, you, you can actually order the, you know, the poetry arrangement or whatever it'll be called. And, uh, and it'll arrive and there'll be this little pinwheel of paper stuck in the center and it'll have uh, one of the poems that Swim curated. The thing that's always impressed me about what your vision has been and the vision of the whole team is we all know how disparate Miami is in terms of a cultural community. And you are able, like very few other events in Miami, to be able to touch all of those different cultural entities. Speak to that a little bit. Yeah, we try. I mean, you know, we're a staff of four and there's only so much that a staff of four is capable of in terms of you know, having an impact in, in a county as large as Miami. So the, the open call process is really important to us because it allows us to get way more creative voices involved in the festival. You know, it's not, it's not just like we're listening to people and then delivering programming, but those people, the audience are actually the ones delivering the programming. They're the ones who are, who are authoring it. And, and that allows it, I think, to have a, a larger footprint. Um, and it allows it to be something that, you know, even we could never imagine. I mean, you know, the stuff that happens in April is stuff that I never would have thought of. And mostly because, well, I'm not from that community. So I have no idea what, what that community um, needs or wants. Um, so we, that's always been an emphasis to us. Uh, and it's also always been the joy for us is that we learn so much about Miami every April through, through doing this festival. And it, this place just gets bigger and more wonderful to us every year. Well, and the community engagement, I mean, I, I know, you know, some of the things that probably everyone has heard about that's more famous than some of the other stuff is when you did a poem that was on the rooftop, and you'll have to remind me where it was, where everyone flying in from Miami or flying in or flying out of Miami could see. Mm-hmm. Where was that? That was... Uh, it's on, it's in Winwood. It's on top of, um, I think the right. building's still owned by Mono Winwood. Um, oh, it is. But, and, it, and it's still there. So if you, if you're flying out of Miami on most of the flight paths, if you're on the right-hand side of the plane and you look down, you can see a poem that was written by a girl named Naima Marshall, who was in third grade at the time. And it says, um, I am from a place where it does not snow. Um, but then we also did one at FIU South in Sweetwater on top of one of their parking garages the the honors college actually did the whole thing and that poem was by a fourth grader named taiwan williams um and it says um when i look at a cloud i feel like i am one um, and <laughs> kids huh kids you can't beat them as poets they're undefeated oh, i know i know they really are i remember reading a book teaching kids poetry it was by kenneth coke Mm-hmm. who wrote that book and and some of those things were absolutely astonishing and i also remember one of the ones that really interested me was when you had that you had the poet you had poems being sewn into uh clothing that was found at thrift shops right i remember that as well yeah that was by the the, the artist augustina wigate uh, proposed the idea of making clothing tags that had short poems on them. And then she would go into thrift stores and clandestinely sew them into right. pant, pants and shirts and coats so that when you got home and opened it up, all of a sudden, oh, there's, a, there's a poem in here. <laughs> no, it's great. It's great. And, and you know, the other thing as well is I remember at, uh, I remember through your, your Oh Miami Festival, the Poetry Festival, seeing some poets that I normally wouldn't have seen, like W.S. Merwin. I remember that reading a number of years ago that was so poignant. And mm-hmm. 
you've had Tracy Smith and you've, mm-hmm. you've had so many amazing, you have brought amazing poets to Miami as well. Yeah, we've always tried to strike a balance um, of getting some, you know, some of the best poets from around the world to, to be in Miami and, and do some readings and do readings in special places and um, make it feel unique. Like with Tracy K. Smith, um, we project, we basically created a, an original projection of her poems inside of the planetarium at Frost Science. So like it actually constellated into the stars um, inside of the planetarium. But W.S. Merwin, I mean, I, I just, I'm, I'm so happy that, that I got to hear him read. I mean, like what a blessing. I just, I'll never forget that night. That was really, truly special. Yeah, those are very, you know, those are, cultural touch points in all of our lives mm-hmm. and you've created those you should feel very proud about you know what you've done in terms of raising the profile of literature and poetry in Miami it's an amazing amazing thing for those people listening who are not in Miami how can those folks find out either about what you're doing or about some of the online programming that you have yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's at omiami.org. So just Miami with an O in front.org. And we do have some online programming still. Uh, there's a great reading of South Florida poets uh, with books that came out in the last year or two years. Uh, that's headlined by Denise Duhamel. Uh, we're doing a, a reading to close the month um, for the last issue of a, a magazine we had called Highlight, which, which Books and Books sells. Great uh, magazine. Yeah, so we're doing our final issue of that. Um, and, it, and it's an incredible list of poets, um, some of whom will be joining us for the reading. And that the magazine is structured so that it's, it's poems by kids that we've worked with in our education program. So poems mostly by third through fifth graders. And then for each one of those poems, we sent it to a poet and asked them to write a poem after that kid's poem. Oh, you know? great. So nice. there's like a poem by a third grader and then there's Kevin Young writing a response to that poem. (laughs) That is really, really, that's, I can't wait for that. When does that come out? When does that issue come out? So it'll come out at the end of the month, like right before the release reading and the reading is is the last day of April on the 30th and it'll be online. So Scott, let's talk about Oh Miami. Let's talk about the vision of Oh Miami. How did, how did that come to be? How did Oh Miami come to be? And what is Oh Miami beyond just the poetry festival because you have stuff going on all year round. I know that. It it really it came to be from, you know, I, I started doing some grassroots organizing right as I was leaving grad school, um, inspired by my teacher Campbell McGrath, who kind of like gave me a shove in the back to do some of this stuff, and like the the seal of permission, which I think all young people need. Um, and then uh, kind of one thing led to another, and it got the attention of the Knight Foundation. Um, and I was really inspired by, uh, what they were doing at the time with random acts of culture, where they were having opera singers pop up in the Philadelphia market and, you know, just like stopping traffic and bringing this, this art form that was typically found in a very rarefied space and bringing it out into the public. And so, um, when, when we proposed doing a poetry festival to them, uh, I think a lot of the early discussions were like, well, how can we do something like that for poetry? How can we, how can we do something that makes, takes poetry out of maybe a university setting and, and makes it out in the open? Um, and, and our board member, Tom Healy, was like a, a big part of those conversations. And Alberto Ibarguen, the, the president of the Knight Foundation, was a big part of those conversations. So it was really a, a think tank of a lot of people who said, let's, let's just see what's possible with what we can do in April. Um, and let's experiment really widely and 
try to do something that's super ambitious, like <laughs> reach every, you know, all at that time, 2.6 million people. And now it's closer to three. Um, but, but then the, the organization as a whole has evolved since then as well. Um, and now we, we have an education program that runs all year long where we, we teach poetry in elementary schools and now in high schools as well. And we do publish books uh, whenever we have a little bit of money on the side. <laughs> and, and your book publishing is brilliant because what it is is it, what I love about it is that it is, it is regional, but it's, it's, it's even, it's uber regional. In other words, it's, you, you are looking at the most unusual things that are happening here in Miami. So talk about your books a little bit and what, what they've been so far. Yeah, so so Forager. Uh, Forager, the Forager. Yeah, which was, I think the subheading was a subjective guide to edible plants in Miami, nice. um, which was two, two artists, really, um, a, and one, one who is, um, I, I don't even, a botanist of some sort or like a gardener. I don't know how she would describe herself. But they, uh, they came to us with this project, um, and, and that ended up being our first book, but very like Miami facing. And I think, think that's what inspires us with the books is, um, you know, when we take on a project, it's usually because we're thinking, well, if, if this doesn't happen in Miami, it's never going to happen anywhere, you know, <laughs> like, no, only the, like the one on traffic, right? Right. Which was, um, called making good time. Uh, and that was a project that was brought to us by, by the writer Lynn Barrett, who was also one of my grad school teachers and a fantastic editor. Um, maybe the best editor I've ever met in my life. And she had this idea to do an anthology of just transit stories in Miami. And anyone who's spent time down here knows that transit stories are ubiquitous. <laughs> so that was a really fun book. It's one of the most profound things that I've seen in 40 years as a bookseller. And that is the emergence of new voices, the emergence of, of a kind of recognition that, that other cultures are given voice in so many different ways. We want to speak to Miami. And so if we're speaking to Miami, that means speaking to all Miamians. And so that kind of forces us to look at, well, who is in Miami? Um, you know, we believe everybody is has the same amount of um, like they're the same amount of deserving of a poem or, or the chance to be a poet. So, and that, you know, and that's why we work with incarcerated poets as well is that it doesn't matter where you are. If you're in Miami, uh, you know, you should encounter a poem the same as anyone else. Uh, and so having that mission, um, I think forces you to consider, uh, you know, any kind of structures that are preventing you know, some people from having their voices heard. And then how can you address that through the programming? When you live in Miami, you live in a multicultural world. So mm -hmm. if you want to be, if you want to honor that, you have to honor it. And mm -hmm. we've been all doing it for how many years now? And now as we see the world beginning to wake up to it, um, you know, I think there's a sense of recognition for both of us. I love being in Miami. I mean, that's my response to that. Is, uh, I, yeah. I love this city. I, I think it's, uh, you, you know, I, I get asked, I've been asked on a few different occasions to, you know, oh, would you do on Miami in a different city? And my response is, I don't even know if it would work in a different city because right. I, I just think Miami is such a, a unique place and people here are um, so, so passionate and so imaginative and uh, poetry really is, I think hardwired into people here in a deeper way. Um, I really believe that um, just from what I've seen. And so 
I, it's a, I think it's an incredible privilege and blessing to live here. And, and I, I'm thankful well, for it every day. You, it, you know, the reason why it is so hardwired is a lot because of your efforts. And um, what, one of the, you know, as we, as we move into National Poetry Month, who, who are you reading these days? Who, who, what, what poets excite you now? New poets? Oh, man. Older poets. There's so many. Uh, well, one from Miami, uh, Legna Rodriguez Iglesias, I think is so, so talented. And um, she just, everything she writes, I think is incredible. So I'm, I'm always excited when she has a new project, which is, she's prolific. So fortunate for me, she's always got something new. Um, I've been reading a lot of uh, Wanda Coleman um, okay. recently. Um, I think Terrence Hayes' uh, Selected of her that came out uh, a little over a year ago, I think started me on that journey. But then I really went down the rabbit hole of trying to find all of her books and reading through them. I just, her voice is just incredible to me. I also, uh, another poet who just like Wanda died, you know, within the last 10, 15 years is Aga Shahid Ali, um, whose work uh, has just been really, um, I just can't, I can't stop reading it <laughs> over the last year, like in the pandemic. Um, yeah. So those are the first three that come to mind, but also, I mean, younger poets, um, uh, I'm also, I really loved uh, Nate Marshall's book, Finna, that came out this year. I thought that was fantastic. And all of you listening out there, you need to know that Scott, in his own right, he's very, he's very modest about it, but he's a marvelous poet. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask him if he'll read something for us yes. if we go yes. off from there. This is a half translation, half original. Um, it's, a, it's a short poem by Lorca. Uh, but in the in Lorca's poem, um, it's the central image is an orange. But I wanted the poem to rhyme, and as you know, orange doesn't rhyme with anything. <laughs> Unlike naranja, which is you know right. this beautiful multisyllabic right. word that rhymes with many things in Spanish. So this is I changed it to make it uh, feel more like South Florida to me. So this is Casita of the Pinecone. The pinecone wasn't asking for the dawn, almost undead on its limb. It asked to be alone. The pinecone wasn't asking for science or shadow, the minds and bodies limits. It asked to be alone. The pinecone wasn't asking for the pinecone. The stillness of the sky was in it. It asked to be alone. You know, thank you for being a guest on The Literary Life. And I hope we can, we will, and we'll do this many, many more times. So good luck, have a great month, and uh, we'll see you down the road a little bit. Thank you so much, Mitchell. I, I love being on. I appreciate it.